This is the future of finance by Motive Labs. Hello, welcome to the future of finance, the Motive Labs podcast where we live and breathe the next generation of financial technology. Welcome back. I'm Sam, and I am joined today in Toronto by Paul Demeray III, Chair and CEO of Sagar Holdings, Chair of Portage and Diagram, amongst a number of other things. Welcome. Thank you very much. So we're sat here in the middle of a storm outside on the 50th floor in Toronto. You're a bit of a household name here. You sit on the board of a number of large companies and have started a number of companies. Could you, just for our listeners, let them know a little bit about your background and what you do? Fantastic. I am the CEO of Cigar Holdings, which effectively is a business that runs a series of investment strategies. We run a credit fund. We run a venture fund. We run a private equity fund. The venture fund is really a result of also being a senior vice president at Power Financial Corporation of Canada, which is the owner of Great West Life Co. and Investors Group Financial, which is one of the largest insurance companies in Canada and one of the largest independent mutual fund dealers in Canada. We, a few years ago, uh, concluded that there was going to be a lot of disruption in financial services and that there were entire segments of the population that we were not currently serving. And so we decided to launch our fund, which is Portage, and that really began with a significant investment in a company called Wealthsimple. And today, beyond leading the fund with my partner, Adam Faleski, I sit on the boards of Wealthsimple, Coho, and Integrate AI, all companies trying to change the way financial services are delivered to consumers. Thank you. You studied at Harvard. You studied at INSEAD. You then went to Goldman. It's really the who's who CV of where to study and where, where to go first. You've got a totally unique vantage point over a, a number of different firms, from innovation firms to incumbents to investment firms. Could you give the listeners a little bit of an insight as to how you see collaboration models evolving and perhaps how it differs in Canada and what some of the winning formulas you're seeing are? Thank you for that. Ultimately, from the vantage point of sitting on the boards of Great West Life Co. and Investors Group and having observed a lot of other financial institutions, I think the biggest challenge today for, you know, scaled companies is that with scale comes legacy. And that legacy comes in legacy systems, legacy talent, legacy channels, uh, legacy customers. All of that legacy is very hard to evolve. And I think that a lot of large companies are struggling with change management initiatives. And one of the most challenging change management initiatives is the willingness to take risks and the willingness to potentially fail when a risk is taken. Uh, just given you know the conservative nature that gets built in these large scaled organizations, and I think ultimately the financial institutions that are the most willing to take risks and potentially fail will be those that are able to circumvent and overcome their legacy challenges in the future. Thanks. And, and I love that statement around all the various 
legacy pieces, particularly legacy talent. Reskilling and, and preparing the next generation is a, is a hot topic at the moment and something I feel very passionate about. We'll come back to that in a bit. Portage is one of the most well-known venture funds in, in our space on the planet. Could you perhaps give a little indication as to what the fund looks for, the kind of portfolio composition, and what some of the biggest milestones to date have been? Fantastic. We really focused on empowering entrepreneurs and giving entrepreneurs the tools to succeed in their home markets and giving them the confidence to win abroad. But our feeling is that to win abroad, you need to have built a sustainable competitive moat in your home market. And so we look for entrepreneurs that have bold visions that take a technology-first perspective because we believe that one of the key elements to succeeding in financial services today is about product development and having back-end systems that deliver delightful consumer experiences. So as a result, a technology-first approach is really important, and a segmented approach is very important. For us, it's really important for the entrepreneurs that we partner with, for them to have defined a clear pain point that they're trying to resolve, as well as a clear segment of the population that they're going to try and serve as the early adopters. Because what we found is that customer acquisition costs is much more manageable when you know exactly who you're trying to target. And so that effectively is what we're looking for. And we're looking for this globally. You know, we are very active in North America, but we just hired a partner in Europe and we have an investment leader in Asia as well. That's awesome. Really interesting, the, the, the win abroad, but only after you have your home market settled first. Are there specific markets that you're going to go to? I mean, obviously, now you have your partner in, in Europe and, and in Asia. Are there places where your particular network and experience would lead you to first? Yes. Yeah, so we actually just went through this exercise where we looked at, you know, what are the markets where we had the deepest connections as a team? And our feeling is that to get access to the best deal flow and to be the most help to entrepreneurs that we partner with, focusing on markets where we have deep networks, both with, you know, financial institutions, but also with a variety of other kind of ecosystem partners is very important. And so as a result, that's really why we've landed on a strategy where we focus on North America, Western Europe, Hong Kong, Singapore. Those are places where we think we can not only identify the best entrepreneurs, but where I think that as a team, we can make a meaningful impact on their businesses via introductions. One of the things that helps us cover that much territory is that we're extremely focused in terms of the sectors that we invest in. We are exclusively focused on wealth management, insurtech, and personal finance, as well as the enabling layers behind those three verticals, things like blockchain, AI, aggregation tools, cybersecurity, but always focused on those niche segments. That's a perfect explanation. Thank you. Portage is also an investor in Diagram Ventures, which is probably not the typical sort of investment a VC would make, but no doubt very accretive to your overall model, and I suspect highly strategic. Can you, as founder and chair, can you explain a little bit about the mission and, and what the link with Portage is? We founded Diagram Ventures uh, three years ago now, myself and Francois Lafortune. And really the goal there was to leverage our expertise in the three verticals I spoke about earlier to take what we viewed as the best ideas from around the world and bring them to North America. And then what we really do is we look to do three things. 
we look to take these ideas and we look to match them with talent by finding a leadership team that is going to be passionate about the challenge and execute extremely well, as well as build a team around them. We look to match them with capital and we basically de-risk the capital raising process by committing just over $4 million to each startup that emerges out of our incubator. And then we look to supercharge that cocktail of talent and capital by giving them access to our network and very quickly help them land initial contracts. And so, you know, the perfect example for that is we recently launched a term life company named Breed Life. And from the moment of conceptualization of the product, you know, basically the PowerPoint presentation to an insurance policy being sold in the market was less than four months. And so that, you know, is a pace that is unique in my mind. And we're able to do that in a very repeatable way. In the last 24 months, we founded five companies and the goal is to found 14 more companies over the next 36 months. Wow. That's, uh, yeah, that's, that's super exciting. And, and what an incredible feeder for Potage as well. Two interesting points there. The, the first is you talk about networks, but really networks leading to contracts. That, that's something, a motive we massively believe in. There's lots of people with great networks, but how can you actually build that into something meaningful and economic for a firm? And then the second is best ideas from around the world. That segues nicely into my next question around Wealth Simple, uh, arguably Canada's number one fintech firm. There was an enormous robo-advisory boom that Wealthsimple got well ahead of the curve on. And you've gone from over 100,000 customers to $3 billion in AUM. What do you think presents the biggest opportunities and challenges for Wealthsimple? And uh, forgive me, because no doubt they're probably already doing this or certainly thinking about it. Is there a B2B model that underpins that as well for supercharging that growth? Let me address your question about contracts with financial institutions first, because I think this is one of the big differentiators of Portage. We have a three-person team whose only role is to work with financial institutions that invest in our fund, understand what their strategic priorities are, and help line the startups that we introduce them to with those strategic priorities. What we found is that there is a range of startups and funds that take a very shotgun approach that are just continuously trying to introduce their portfolio companies to whoever will take a meeting. And that often ends up being an inefficient use of time for the startup and an inefficient use of time for the financial institution. And we found over time that having a very clear view on strategic priorities of the incumbent and what are the key pain points that they're trying to solve and focusing our introductions on that pain point is very important. And then we accompany the startup and the incumbent in the negotiation of their contract because we find that serving as a lubricant in those conversations is often very important. Your question around Simple, we basically seeded Simple three years ago now. And so basically went from zero clients and zero assets and really zero employees to over 100,000 clients in three geographies, over $3 billion of assets and a team that is approaching 200. The challenge ultimately in all these companies is how do you make the unit economics work? How do you acquire customers at low enough of a cost to basically make the model work? And what's exciting is that we took a pretty big bet early on that by building a brand and a globally now recognized brand, our customer acquisition costs would end up coming down. 
And, you know, that sounds a little counterintuitive, spending a lot on a brand for customer acquisition costs to come down. But what we found is that today in Canada, Simple has about 20% plus brand recognition across the country, which actually helps us acquire customers cheaper and cheaper. And we have very high conversion rates of customers when they come to our site. So when another person is referred, 70% of them tend to fund an account. When a person comes to our site unreferred and registered, we still convert about 30% of them. So that's basically the power of our brand and the power of our customer promise. You know, I think what WellTemple did extremely well in Canada is they married great technology, great marketing with a brand promise that really filled a need that was not being served in Canada. I think that, you know, as you build these digital advice platforms and other geographies, the pairing of those three things is extremely important and the authenticity of your message is incredibly important. On the B2B side, we've actually recently launched a Wealthsimple for Advisors. We recently hired the former chief operating officer of the wealth business at the Royal Bank of Canada to lead that business for us. That business has doubled in the last six months and we believe will be a major engine of growth going forward because in the case of Canada, the back office infrastructure available to independent advisors is nowhere at the level of reliability that it is in other geographies. And so we believe we have a boulevard of opportunity in terms of bringing best-in-class tech to advisors who are serving segments of the population that are often different from our core Wealth simple segment. And the way we live that is if we look at our mutual fund dealer and our own advisor force, you know, we have 3,500 advisors in Canada. 97% of Wealth simple customers have never touched our ecosystem prior to opening an account. They, for the vast majority, come from the banks and for the vast majority have never invested before. Wow, that's an incredible trend. And also just incredible to think about the journey that Wealth Simple has been on over the last three years. What an incredibly fast-paced and exciting time they must have had. A lot of what you've just spoken about is, is also applicable to the digital bank landscape, particularly around cost of customer acquisition. I know that you guys are invested in Loot, which is run by a, a good pal of mine, Ollie. And the UK has been having a really interesting time. The digital bank boom has been crazy. I would go as far as to say that the UK really has led the neobank or challenger bank front. Can you perhaps talk a little bit about what it is you liked so much about Loot? And then what insights can you give us to the Canadian challenger bank landscape? And if, if there really are any challenges here to the big four? You know, first answering your question about Loot. I mean, I think what got us excited about Loot is the founder, Ollie. You know, for such a kind of young, dynamic guy to, you know, take on a system that he felt was so profoundly not addressing his needs was really inspiring. And doing it in such a kind of scrappy way, you know, was really kind of impressive. And for us, you know, we ended up learning a lot from Loot. In Canada, the leading challenger bank is actually also controlled by our fund. It is a bank called Coho. We are the majority investors in it. It is led by a CEO, Daniel Eberhard, who has the same kind of passion that Ollie has. And ultimately, 
What's exciting about Canada is that things like interchange, which are, you know, a source of revenue in Europe, the European interchange fee is about 25 basis points. In Canada, it's one and a half percent, which creates a much more attractive model for this type of business. What's exciting about the challenger bank model in my mind is that when you look at the cost of acquisition of a Weld Simple, and you compare that to the cost of acquisition of some of these challenger banks, the challenger banks are operating at a far lower cost of acquisition. The question then is, how is that segment different? And are there opportunities to create customer acquisition platforms that will acquire customers cheaply and then cross-sell other financial institutions' products? And what we've been seeing across our Portage ecosystem, and we're starting to see it in Europe as well, is increasing partnerships between fintechs. And so you look at Weldsimple having partnered in the UK with Revolut, or Weldsimple having partnered with our platform here, Coho. What's amazing is that in a very short time after launching the Coho partnership, one in 10 Coho customers looked to open a Weldsimple account. And we're seeing cross-sale across all of our platforms is something that's more and more important. If you look at Weldsimple, we've just launched a platform called Weldsimple Trade, which is a commission-free trading account. We thought that in our wildest dreams, in the first four months, 10,000 people would open an account. In our first week, we had an 85,000-person wait list, of which 30% of our existing Weldsimple customers signed up for trade, which is fascinating. And we're seeing this across our fintech portfolios. We've now recently launched a digital mortgage platform, and we've launched a digital life insurance platform. We hope that both of those will end up being great partners to our digital bank. And so over time, I view a lot of these digital banks as front ends that serve a very specific customer segment and that will deliver a whole suite of financial solutions to them that will improve their financial lives. Thanks. Some of those behavioral insights, I mean, you just couldn't predict some of them, which is is fascinating. And I, I guess every time you go through these these iterations and these milestones, you'll continue to learn and, you, and you'll then feed them back into your theses for other firms as well. One of the biggest milestones you had recently was the recently exited Zensurance. Congratulations. It's the uh, first big milestone for Fund One. Again, also a big milestone for the Canadian fintech scene. Your big brother, just below you, America, tends to take a lot of the, the limelight. But there's a huge amount the Canadian fintech scene has to offer. And I think Portage is obviously one of the key components in backing them. What is it about the Canadian regulation that you think provides either the greatest opportunity or, or the greatest drawback? And what do you think could be done to improve things and to put Canada even more firmly on the global landscape? There's a great opportunity in Canada for fintech. Because I think a lot of the structure of the industry is very legacy burdened. You know, I was mentioning the challenges from legacy earlier. And the reality is that the insurance companies, the banks, the asset managers have not had access to the same third party providers that help modernize systems in the UK and in the US, partly because Canada is a smaller country. And so the user experience in Canada and financial services remains significantly behind that of other markets. And the fees and the cost to the customer remain significantly higher than in a lot of markets, which you would think 
would provide a massive opportunity for fintech. I would say regulations in Canada and market access for competition is not what it is in other markets. And I think of it in kind of three ways. First, there's a real fragmentation of the regulatory regime in Canada, which causes a lot of friction in terms of permissioning. You know, ultimately the regulators are trying to collaborate you know, for example, there's a passport system between the different regulators. But, you know, in some cases, that passport system works from Ontario to Quebec, but does not work from Quebec to Ontario, because all the regulators have different stakeholders and different ambitions. And so what should be a seamless kind of regulatory interaction ends up being much more complicated than what it is on the surface and more coordination between our regulatory regimes and the country, I believe is very important. Two is open banking. There is no move towards open banking in Canada. The government has set up a commission around it, but ultimately what a lot of people are saying is that open banking in the UK is not working, which is totally false. You know, there is a clear indication that emerging players are benefiting from open banking regulation. But what people say is that, oh, but, you know, people have not closed their bank accounts at one bank and they've not moved. The reality is I think we're still very much an inning one or two of open banking in the UK. And I think people are opening up secondary accounts and trialing other things. And over time, as the barriers to movement and the friction to basically permissioning people to move your data fall, I think you will see more and more benefits from open banking. In Canada, the banks have a stronghold on people's data, making it very hard for people to have visibility in terms of the fees they pay, making it very hard for people to have the ability to move their accounts elsewhere. Some banks and some account types even require a fax to close, which is a little bit antiquated. The third bucket where I think there's regulatory change that's needed is access to the payment systems. In Canada, you can only have access to the payment system if you are a bank. That is different from Europe and different from the US. And ultimately, I think for Canadians to benefit from best-in-class financial services and best-in-class you know, user experiences, opening up access to the payment system is going to be very important because ultimately, you know, today a startup like Coho is only as good as its financial institution partner because Coho cannot access the payment system directly. Thanks. That's fascinating to hear, I guess, the, the outside in version of, of open banking. It's been such a prominent feature in the UK and the open banking implementation entity, I think, have, have done a good job. But if you think about where it came from, it spawned out of PSD2 and the Competition and Markets Authority. I wanted to create more transparency, greater competition, etc. But this isn't an overnight shift. And we're already seeing so many partnership benefits, I think, to the incumbents, to the innovators, and, and ultimately to the customers. I could point at three or four very large-scale examples of this. And I think that if nations such as, I say, the US, namely, with their fragmented ecosystem, can't fix that, they will get left behind. Do you think Canada will move in time? I think it's challenging. I think ultimately what will drive movement is consumers realizing what they're missing. 
You know, if you look at how much consumers are charged and the quality of the consumer experience in Canada relative to that in the other markets, I think they will need to push for change over time. And if they don't want to push for change, I think there is no real impetus for change because, you know, Canada is not a place that went through the financial crisis, you know, with big bailouts of the banks. And so there isn't that same level of kind of political will and anger to kind of drive more competition in the financial services system. And Canadians don't necessarily get to live these new experiences. And so in many ways, Canadians until recently didn't even know what they were being charged for their investment accounts. Today, most Canadians don't know what they're being charged by their banks, but ultimately, I hope that over time there will be more transparency, and that transparency will drive consumers to request more ability to move and more ability to make decisions around their own financial wellness themselves. And so I'm not overly optimistic that change is going to come, but the reality is that the world is a big place. And we are spending a lot of time now investing in Europe because things like GDPR, things like open banking are a major tailwind for fintech there. And we believe that there are many platforms like Clark in Germany that will end up being winners in their markets. And we are very excited to be investing behind platforms like that. Thanks. That's a really interesting insight that the changes will need to be customer driven. Now, I don't think that means that we want people with pickets protesting, but you're absolutely right. A lot of customers don't know what they're being charged for. There's transaction fees in there. There's interest in there. There's an ancillary products and cross-selling in there that people just aren't aware of. So perhaps is it the job of businesses to do surveys, independent reports and stuff to highlight that stuff to help educate? Or is it the job of the regulator? I think it really depends on the market. The United States is a highly competitive financial ecosystem. And so as a result, with very little impetus from the regulators, the banks have had to open up their data systems. And so you, you look at platforms like Quovo and Plaid and Yodli, they've had data pipes into the banks for a very long time. And that has enabled transparency to the consumer and has empowered the consumer to make choice. I think in markets that are less competitive, like Canada, like the UK, like Australia, the regulators stepping in and mandating a certain amount of openness is very important because otherwise the financial institutions will not do it themselves because ultimately they will benefit and they will gain more time by basically having a very closed ecosystem where there's significant friction to customer movement. As a fiercely patriotic Brit, that's one of the things we're most proud of, I think, is, is the great work, the right-touch regulatory environment that the FCA has created and things like Project Innovate and the Sandbox. Perfect examples of that, of the public-private sector cooperation and of really everyone working together for the customer's benefit. We're running out of time. We have a couple of sort of slightly more forward-looking questions at the end, nothing of which will come back to haunt you, I can assure you. You've had an amazing career, no doubt. Within it, you've had mentors and, and so on. Who are the, some of the people that, that you've looked up to? Have there been great leaders that you've admired? I would say that, you know, I'm often torn between the world of investors and the world of operators. I personally hold people like Warren Buffett and Howard Marks as, you know, incredible kind of idols that I 
admire, but I also love operators like the Rails Brothers from Danaher or the Waltons from Walmart, you know, people that have built great businesses and continue to be very active in the kind of management. And I think that's why as a group, as a holding and as a family, we view ourselves as investor operators rather than just investors or rather just operators. And that for me is a concept that's really important is, you know, how do you invest, but also stay close enough of the business to continuously bring value to the entrepreneur who you partnered with. And people that do that well are people that I admire. That's a great answer. I think the combination of investor-operator is is ultimate. I was recently in Aspen at a uh, Fortune Brainstorm tech event, and I heard an investor turn to another very well-known investor, and he said, uh, I really hope people remember me for being an operator and not an investor because that's the hard part. But I think actually the hard part is marrying the two together. It's long-term vision with sound financials underpinning it the whole way. That's a great answer. Thank you. I've got in my notes here, what do you think will be the most promising geographic region over the next 100 years? Maybe we trim that, maybe 20 to 50 years. I think it really depends on who you are and what your resources and network is. I'd say in my menu of opportunity. I have always been bullish on the United States. The United States is one of the largest economies in the world. It has a very clear legal system. It has a great labor movement, cheap energy, rail systems and logistics systems that work extremely well. I think, you know, the US capital markets are a modern miracle that is unrivaled in the world today. And so I'm I am always long America. In fintech specifically, I think Europe's actually a really exciting place to be investing. I think a lot of the financial institutions have particularly large legacy burdens complemented by, in some cases, weak balance sheets, which makes it very hard for them to modernize or invest the capital they need to compete, paired with extraordinarily fintech-friendly regulation. And so I believe that Europe is going to be a very exciting place to be investing from a fintech perspective. I think Asia is an exciting place to observe and see what comes out of there. I do not believe that I have a competitive edge in broader Asia. We are very Singapore and Hong Kong focused because those, you know, have regulatory regimes that are kind of stable, solid financial actors that I think are stable, solid competitive dynamics that, you know, are predictable. I think certain markets like China are really, really exciting in terms of what's happening. But I am not certain. I personally and the Portage team has a definable competitive edge to win in China. Because again, if you think about what it takes to be a successful venture fund, it's about identifying the right startup, it's about having the right filter, and it's about delivering value to that entrepreneur. I think it would be difficult for us to be very differentiated in the first in China and hard for us to be differentiated in the third, where you know we just don't have the network to bring strong value to the entrepreneurs that we partner with. 
That's another great answer. Thank you. And um, I guess replaying it is kind of know what you know and also be aware of what you don't know where possible. Yeah, again, a lot of what you said, it kind of sounds like you've been sitting in the motive uh, strategy meetings because very closely aligned. We're bullish on, on the long-term prospects of the US, very much so Europe, particularly Western Europe. And I think we're in for a really, really exciting time. Huge thanks and a huge thanks to, to Nick who, who reconnected us. I've really, really enjoyed today. I know our listeners will. Thank you. It's been an honor. My pleasure. Thank you for your time and insights. And thank you very much for tuning in. I'm Sam. See you next time. The information contained in this podcast is intended for discussion purposes only. It is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation for the purchase or sale of a security or any services of motive partners. All investing involves risk, and there is no guarantee that past performance will be indicative of future results. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are as of the date of recording, reflect the views and opinions of the persons expressing them, and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of motive partners. Motive partners makes no representations or warranties as to the accuracy, reliability, or completeness of any information provided, and undertakes no obligation obligation to update, amend, or clarify the information in the podcast, whether as a result of new information, future events, or otherwise. Any securities, transactions, or holdings discussed may not represent investments made by motive partners. It should not be assumed that securities, transactions, or holdings discussed, if any, were or will be profitable, or that the recommendations or decisions made in the future will be similar, or will equal the performance of the securities, transactions, or holdings discussed herein. This podcast may contain forward-looking statements that are based on beliefs, assumptions, current expectations, estimates, and predictions about the financial industry the economy, motive partners or motive partners investments. Nothing in the podcast should be construed or relied upon as investment, legal, accounting, tax or other professional advice or in connection with any offer or sale of securities.